The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language. Wait, no it doesn't. Okay then, it contains long words, robots, and too many strange ideas. Saturday the 12th of December 2020. In this episode of the End of Spring series, I'm joined by distinguished professor Genevieve Bell A.O., cultural anthropologist, director of the 3A Institute, futurist, God, I hate that word, and, and well, this will give you an idea of what she's like. When I'm not obsessing about telegraphy and railways, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply pathologically obsessed with elevators. We hear how she rates her own determination to develop a whole new branch of engineering. That is a demented proposition. And we hear one important reason why America is having so much trouble with the coronavirus. American culture is predicated on the idea of the individual as the smallest unit of social meaning. Hello, I'm Still Garyan. This is the 9pm Artificial Intelligence Doom Elevator with Genevieve Bell. Genevieve Bell, when I invited you onto the pod, you told me, and I quote, I am deeply obsessed with telegraph lines and telegraphy at the moment, as well as cybernetics and art, so I'd love to talk on that if it works. It most definitely works, Genevieve, and welcome. (laughs) Hello. So let's start off, telegraph lines and telegraphy, why are you deeply obsessed? Well, you remember me. I'm the woman who always wants to think about what is the system that came before and what can we learn from our history. And I think over the last probably 13 or 14 years, I've been really obsessed with two kinds of broader infrastructures, ones that uh, created new kinds of possibilities, so think telegraphy and electricity, and ones that Mm -hmm. connected up different parts of the world and appeared to be the same technologies but had completely different instantiations, so also the internet, electricity, telegraphy. Uh, And over the last couple of years, telegraphy has been particularly interesting to me. Uh, I spent a bit of time in Ireland recently and they're just having their 160th anniversary of connecting the undersea cable from Dingle in the Kerry County in Ireland to a place romantically called Hearts Content in Canada. (laughs) And the undersea telegraph line, the cable line there, connected those two places and changed the way we thought about time and space, you know, bringing Europe and the United States quite close together. And the engineering project there is quite remarkable, right? You have to roll a piece of cable off the back of a boat, connect two continents. It involved, you know, the invention of things like insulation to protect the copper so it brings in the gutta percha production in malaysia to the you know united kingdom there's all these kind of really interesting things but for me it was also about what physical infrastructure do you need to make the way we think about time and space and information different and so i've you know sort of was thinking about that so just little questions just small questions and when i was there to help celebrate the undersea telegraph's birthday in ireland uh, I basically got up and went, well, that's really nice that you've done that, you know, that, you know, basically 2,000-kilometre undersea cable on a single flat shelf with one boat that could just roll off the cable continuously. I mean, it didn't quite happen like that, but mostly. I was like, but let me tell you, 10 years later, we did something much bigger in Australia. Well, we rolled, you know, a piece of galvanised wire over 3,000 kilometres with 36,000 poles every 80 metres 
in a part of the country that, you know, just didn't have a lot going on. And it's not like rolling something off the back of a boat. It involved camels, among other things. And this room full of Irish people just looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I thought... I know what you're talking about. It's just seriously broad. And I sort of remembered that whilst... If you're a particular vintage in Australia, the Overland Telegraph line is a story we all know about, either because we remember pictures of seeing it, because you and I certainly when we were talking about broadbanding Australia 15 years ago did have that project in the back of our heads, because if you know the Snowy Mountain Scheme, you know the Overland Telegraph Line Scheme, because they're you know, big nation-building engineering projects. But they're also really interesting because it's about the technology, but it's also about the cultural systems and the ecological knowledge and the way those systems required all this other stuff to work so i don't know i was obsessed if you asked me two years ago i would have said also railways i want to talk about trains okay well look before we go too far i I, i'm a bit of a train freak from when i was a kid too surprise surprise right um the overland telegraph we should explain that was Darwin down to Adelaide because Melbourne was in the gold rush times and sydney was kind of doing okay too but certainly victoria was the place to be and as uh, Fiona Patton, MLC, and I have argued on this podcast before, it was either the second richest or, as she insists, the richest city in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. So South Australia really wanted that telegraph line from Darwin, which connected eventually to London, uh, undersea. They really wanted that telegraph line to go through Adelaide because presumably they would get all the business intelligence Well, and also let's not forget if you think about, so, I mean, for me, what's interesting here is what else was going on at the time, right? So Samuel Mm. Morse, who's the inventor of Morse code, American, a painter uh, by trade who- And only 10 years before what we're talking about. That is correct. And so, you know, he's inventing Morse code in the US. He sends one of his acolytes to Australia who ends up helping build the telegraph connections between Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide and, and Sydney. You get Todd turning up in Adelaide as the superintendent of telegraphy and communications. But Adelaide at that moment in time, so we're talking 1840s, 1850s, it, it, we have to go back to the kind of colonial history of Australia. If you think about how boats came to Australia, you may remember this from primary school. If you had it beaten into you by Mrs. Nichols at Turner Primary like I did, uh, the boats come from Europe, they come round the Horn of Africa, they get onto the Roaring Forties, they get to Australia and they need to turn right in time to get underneath basically Western Australia and come into the Australian mainland. And for the most part, those boats coming from Europe, one of their first ports of call in Australia in the 19th century was actually Adelaide. Sometimes they came past and provisioned in Perth, but frequently they actually came under and kept going and Adelaide was their first port of call. So in the 1840s, 50s and 60s, it was not uncommon for people to row out from Adelaide to meet the boat so that they could get all the news or row out from Perth to meet the boats and continue with the boat along. So that by the time the boats touched down into Adelaide, Adelaide was actually the port from which the news was being broadcast to the rest of Australia. So Adelaide already had a really weird position in the ecosystem of news and information in Australia. I've often wondered if that's also why Adelaide has had a a lock on certain kinds of artistic production, right? So the angry penguins and the ginger warabacks come out of Adelaide. Adelaide has the largest number of ham radio licenses in the 19th and 20th or 20th century. And so it's sort of, it got the news first, right? So the idea that Todd and the various kind of governors of South Australia had that they wanted to keep that lock on news and information by connecting up through to Darwin kind of makes sense of the geopolitics of the place, but it's also, you know, it's the connection to why the Burke and Wills expedition 
why McDonald Stewart's expeditions. It's the kind of notions about all these other things that were going on there. But I think for me, the really abiding, fascinating thing is that you connect that telegraph line in 72, right? So 1872, and it goes from taking six weeks with a good wind to 12 weeks with a bad to getting anything from London to Sydney to taking eight and a half hours. Except not everything travels that way, right? Only certain information that can be turned into Morse code can travel. Only if you can pay for it. Only if you can make the information meaningful in that kind of cipher sense does it travel. And all this other stuff must still have been coming by boat. And so for me, there's this moment in 72 where, which is not that long ago really, where information suddenly fragments into the thing that you could shorten, contract and send over the wire versus the stuff that still needed to appear physically. Anyway, I'm, I'm sort of I'm mesmerised by all of that. Well, I can understand it because I'm looking at the numbers. To build that telegraph line, South Australia spent half its annual budget. That's which right. Which is a hell of a commitment. Uh, and then it blew out 400% as projects do. Often do. But so they got two years of the state's budget and – so many people were then moving to Melbourne to work on the uh, the goldfields mm-hmm. and make their fortune. Um, South Australia nearly went bankrupt in the 1880s. And there was, a, I think, a depression in Australia at that point, then a recession at least. So it wouldn't have been cheap to send a telegram. Uh, it was surprisingly not as expensive as you'd think in the context What's interesting is throughout this period, so 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, the pricing structure was such that they were creating differential pricing structures. So think of this as paying by the packet and different people pay differently by the packet. This should sound familiar to any of us who think about the 5G business proposition. Uh, (laughs) Government communications were priced at a different price than commercial ones. Uh, There were different layers of how information could move. I think what's as interesting, if you think about the kind of business models in play, right? So in the 1860s and 1870s, there were companies forming globally who were working out how to sell the undersea cable part. So when we talk about the internet, we often argue about 5G versus fixed line. We talk about, you know, mobile broadband versus, you know, the wire. We don't spend as much time, and we probably should, talking about what makes all of that in some ways possible, which is these great undersea submarine cables, right, that connect up the entire planet. And that really started in the 50s and 60s, the 1850s and 60s. And by the 1870s, there were companies who were making their business, delightfully, including the one that sold the service to Australia, of going to a guy, I think his name is Fields maybe, because he's the one who underwrote the US-Europe cable. But he basically came to all the colonies in Australia, West Australia, New South Wales, Vic, South Australia, Queensland, and said to them, I will pull a cable to some part of Australia, but you're going to need to pay me in advance for the pulling the undersea bit. So there was a basically a, a cost that you were going to provide to them. Think of this as an early public-private partnership. <laughs> and the closer you could get it to the north of Australia, the cheaper the price was going to be because clearly this is priced by the metre of undersea cable, right? And so there were conversations about bringing it in at, on the West Australian coast, not anywhere obvious, Port Essendon on the, the north coast, Darwin, as well as Queensland. So there were multiple people contesting working out how to put places. And Victoria was trying to create a passage north so that they could have a bit of, I think called Cape York these days, as their kind of end point. So everyone was looking for a point on the top of Australia so they had the shortest cable pull. And the business in you know Europe who are selling undersea cable edge are effectively saying, give us money and we'll lay your cable. 
Um, and of course, part of the reason that South Australia didn't fare as badly in that deal as they might otherwise have had was they had to create a date by which they would get to Darwin and connect Adelaide to Darwin. They missed that window by six months, but the cable pull from Europe got here and failed. And so oh. it, took them, it took them a while to fix it on their end too. So truthfully, the gap isn't quite as bad as it was, but it was a fascinating business model that they were creating back then of, you know, who's paying for the infrastructure and who would then control it. Questions that I think we can still reasonably ask today. There is a, a well, a, a quite well-regarded book called The Victorian Internet that talks about this, isn't yeah, it, by Tom a guy Standage. called Tom Standage. Yeah, I love that book. It starts with what has to be one of my favourite examples of embodied technology, where it starts with a story about the early history of uh, conducting and moving signal, and uh, he talks about a French a scientist who was also uh, a clergyman who experiments with conducting material through wire by connecting 200 priests in a, in a row and making them all hold a piece of wire and then running a charge through it. <laughs> <laughs> priests to the premises internet. Yeah, exactly. No one dies, amazingly. Um, we can talk some stuff about how do you send signal and all those things. But, yeah, the Victorian Internet is a lovely book. There's also a really great history of um, the te- Telegraph in America called something really banal like the Telegraph in America, 1840 <laughs> which is completely excellent. And then, of course, you know, in Australia there's Frank Clune's book from the 1950s, which is a history of the Overland Telegraph line, and Peter Morton's book called The End of Silence, I think. Okay, well, as regular listeners to the pod will know, uh, there are going to be links to all of those things on the podcast webpage at the 9pmedict.com. We've got so much to talk about. We always do this. We always go down so many fascinating rabbit holes. But Listen, I think culturally they're probably more like wombat holes. Oh, okay, yes. Well, they're bigger. Yes, all right, I will now change... Uh, I will now change my standard wording. Well, no, because I think you can make the difference, right? Rabbit holes and wombat holes are clearly two completely different things, but I suspect the ones you and I go down are are wombat warrens. Pretty much. Um, Look, let's let's just change the subject very, (laughs) very briefly. On this first Friday of December, we find ourselves entering in some of the darkest days in the pandemic. Yesterday, the U.S. shattered daily records across the board. 2,879 new deaths reported in the United States. I want to give you a sense of exactly what that means. It's like having a Katrina and a half every single day. Unless you have somebody in that number, maybe you don't care. But imagine if that's someone you care about. Imagine if that is yourself. This is where we are right now. It is dire. And let this number sink in. 538,000 people out of the total number of American deaths. A key model now projects by April. And with the coronavirus surging out of control, California Governor Gavin Newsom has announced a new stay-at-home order that's dependent on ICU bed capacity. The bottom line is if we don't act now, our hospital system will be overwhelmed. If we don't act now, we'll continue to see a death rate climb more lives lost. The state divided into five regions, and if remaining ICU capacity falls below 15%, it would trigger a three-week stay-at-home order in that section of the state, which would mean bars, wineries, hair salons, and personal care services would be forced to shut down. And only allow restaurants to offer takeout and delivery. We really all need to step up. We need to meet this moment 
head on. Now, that audio montage is from The Recount uh, on Twitter from the 5th of December. Now, Genevieve, before we talk about that, the very next day after, after all of that, this is what President Donald Trump said. So don't listen to my friends. Just go out. Just go out. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, we want you to fix the system. We're going to fix the system. But the system will be fixed when these people get in. They'll get in and we'll fix the system. Because we're all, we're all victims. Everybody here, all these thousands of people here tonight, they're all victims. Just go out, says Trump. Yeah, don't worry about any of this. Just go out. How? It's astounding. But before... We do get to that, Genevieve. How has the Rona affected you personally? I've been asking everyone this. Yeah, I mean, it's been a year that didn't unfold the way I had hoped or planned. I think that's sort of, you know, the high-level summary, not the year I was expecting. Uh, Listen, I think at a personal level, it's been complicated. I run a small innovation institute here at the Australian National University, and I have students and I have employees And I think for my students who were from all over the world this year, it was really hard. It was hard for us to feel like we could look after them. And that was hugely important to me. It was hard, I know, because most of them come from places that are far less safe than Canberra. And I think there's nothing stranger in some ways than to be safe yourself and know your family and friends aren't. Uh, And I think that was a form of cognitive dissonance for everyone. And I think it was a lot of hardship. We had to work out how to run our classes remotely for a while uh, and then work out how to have them vaguely co-present. And I think, you know, the challenges of providing a a unique educational experience that's predicated a lot on embodied learnings, a little complicated when you aren't. And I think that created just a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, I don't know quite what the right word is. It was a lot of complexity and a lot of hardship. We were incredibly lucky. My students are uh, a cohort of people full of grace and generosity and willingness. And I think that really helped. Same with the staff at the Institute. Uh, I think there's the kind of collective weirdness of uh, this will be the first year since 96, I think, that I've been in one physical place for this long. Uh, Certainly the last time my passport was this unused was probably 1995. Um, It's strange to regard airports as a, a dangerous place rather than a place that was always, for me, optimistic. And then, you know, I I spent 30 years living in the US. It's very hard to watch that place feel as unmoored from reality as it currently is and to feel both as far away from it, I can't see my friends or help them, and to worry about what it means to be living in a place that feels that broken culturally, structurally, politically. Um, you know, I zoom straight ahead into the Rona because it's on all our minds. I forgot to ask you about your journey. For people who don't know you, sure, uh, let's – what you're doing now first, the 3A Institute in, you know, the elevator pitch. <laughs> yes. So we should have taken from the – there's a woman who can talk a lot about telegraph stations. Who the hell is she and what the hell's her problem? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a problem. We could be here sometime on that too. Yeah, indeed. Um, I yeah. run a small – Innovation Institute here at the Australian National University, uh, small in size, not small in mission. We take our purpose to be the need to establish a new branch of engineering to take AI safely, sustainably and responsibly to scale. We think you have to do that by building new practitioners, new skills and new knowledge. Uh, the reason I think I'm 
bullshit enough to get that done because that is a demented proposition, uh, is that (laughs) I've got a kind of distinct set of skills. I'm a cultural anthropologist by training and by childhood. I grew up in uh, my mom's field sites in central and northern Australia in the 1970s and 1980s, so I spent my childhood living in Aboriginal communities. Uh, And I spent my 20s, 30s and 40s living and working in the United States. I was educated at Stanford, did my PhD there in Native American studies, feminist and queer theory, which makes me an ideal person to then spend the next 20 years at Intel, uh, the chip manufacturer. (laughs) I know, this is such an amazing transition. Yeah, the do-do-do-do-do people. Um, I spent 20 years there building their user experience and design thinking competencies, and my last gig there was uh, co-running their strategy office. And you and I first crossed paths when I was working at Intel as the kind of... uh, occasional person who would turn up and go, let me tell you about what people are doing and how we can use that to drive our innovation process. And so Mm. I've spent the better part of the last, I'd say at this point, 25 years in the middle of the conversations about the kind of futures we're building with technical systems. And on my best days, I'd like to think I was a, um, a useful voice in suggesting that we might want to unfold those conversations and that technology slightly differently. I will say that your your other elevator pitch, which I've seen you like do a whole one hour lecture on, but basically in the same way that computing science was what held together the entire early technological revolution, you are wanting to invent the whole next thing after that. Yes. So I would say, you know, the other way to think about that is that over the last 250 years, we've been through four well, three significant waves of technological advancement that have propelled us to need different kinds of knowledge, skill sets and practitioners to unfold those technologies both to scale but for that scale to be safe and responsible for humans. So think of, you know, steam engines, my earlier obsession, steam engines to railways required civil engineers, getting from uh, Edison's early experiments to full electrical grids required not just electrical engineers but really the whole invention of business and management theory Computers, computers required us to actually make the field of computer science come into existence, both as a way of managing the machines that existed, but also imagining new machines and creating, well, a level of abstraction above that technology that let you talk about all computers, not just the ones that existed, but the ones that would come by talking about what made a computer. Um, and even going back and looking at those early um, computer textbooks, I have a couple of them in my office at the moment. The first the first primer of computer science written by uh, Forsyth in 69 is kind of a lovely object that they're attempting to codify what it would mean to have computer science. And so when I talk about needing to build a new branch of engineering for AI, I have somewhere looking in that the notion that AI is like those computers and electricity and the steam engine. It is a technology that will power many things and that we need to get an abstraction layer that sits over it because computer scientists are really good at talking about one piece of the puzzle and engineers are really good about talking about another, but much the same way electricity required electrical engineers as distinct from civil engineers. And, you know, while computer scientists don't love to be told this, computer science is yet another branch of engineering. It is the application of certain kinds of, you know, scientific knowledge to a technical construct. I know he's shaking his head. I think that AI will be that same kind of thing. It's going to require a different, a different accumulation of knowledge, of frameworks, on ontology, if that sort of thing gets you, or an epistemology. I don't really care, right? But it requires a level of abstraction above all those AI-powered systems to start to say what are the 
questions those systems raise at scale and what are the kind of tools we're going to need people to deal with the systems that are being produced, which means when I'm not obsessing about telegraphy and railways, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply pathologically obsessed with elevators. <laughs> that wombat will not be pursued today. <laughs> well, except you the- want to know why. It turns out the thing about lifts is that they are not an object that science fiction writers have ever obsessed about. With the notable exception of Douglas Adams and, you know, Roald Dahl, if you want to call him that, no one ever wrote stories about, like, manic elevators come to kill us or zombie elevators or, you know, the great elevators of doom. And when we talk about AI systems, elevators in Sydney, at least, are one of the very first things to be running full AI stacks. And no one is off there going, oh, my God, the elevators in Barangaroo Tower are going to come out of the tower, stalk down Darling Harbour and kill you. No one thinks that. (laughs) Possibly sensibly. I, uh, exactly. I said we wouldn't follow that wombat, but I don't have any choice here, do I, Genevieve? It's going to happen. But back to the Rona, and, and I'll get this out for me, even though I haven't really suffered day 269, week 38, nearly three quarters of the year. But those horrifying facts, and on th- you know Thursday this week, 3,000 deaths in a single day in the United States. And earlier in the week, there's a map at covidexitstrategy.org, which is about what it says on the tin. They have an updated map and it now shows every state of the US except Hawaii has the COVID spreading uncontrollably. And as we heard before, this will all hit quarter of a million deaths by... April, because the 3,000 deaths we're seeing a day now does not yet take into account the post-Thanksgiving family gathering long, long weekend. Yeah, and because as we know, exponential numbers work that way and for better and for horrifyingly worse, deaths are a trailing indicator of infections here. And you Very, know, very much so, aren't they? Well, um, and the, the, the double complexity here is that it's not just the infection rates it's the that infection rate it's not every day it's new it's every day it builds on what's already there and you have a healthcare system that is fragmented a mix of public and private and you have the kind of complexities of it those things look like averages but when you break down the averages you realize that that means that there are fewer and fewer hospital beds available in some parts of america where you would have only had 10 emergency room beds and now all of them are occupied and so while my colleagues who work in this field will say we know much better how to treat coronavirus than we did when it first appeared. We know much better how to treat critical cases. The infrastructure for delivering that treatment is also stretched to the edge of, of its limits. So it's probably safe to say that while there is better treatment, the chances of that treatment being delivered is getting more and more hard to imagine, which is why you see things like Gavin Newscom in the state of California basically issuing a stay-at-home order to try and create a circuit breaker because his hospitals are at at maximum level. So what does this whole thing tell you from the point of view of an anthropologist amongst your many other skills where you're seeing people just denying that any of this is real, they're refusing to wear their masks because freedom. There's a lovely video kicking around, which again I'll link to, of a Karen being thrown off a plane because she won't put her mask on. Um, Yeah, what does this tell us about humans? Yeah, so listen, I think one of the things that's really striking about this data is that it tells us very clearly about the fact that culture matters, that there are lots of different ways one can make sense of these things, right? And that 
for Americans, there's a very different framework at play than there is, say, for Australians. Because my same colleagues in the US call me and go, we don't understand what's happening in Victoria. Like, people actually stayed home? Like, how does that work? <laughs> like, well, okay, let me explain to you about different notions of ideas of roles and responsibilities. So I still think it's safe to say American culture is predicated on the idea of the individual as the smallest unit of social meaning and that everything adheres to that individual, right? And the role of government is to stop interference and individuals getting to do what, what they want to do within a narrow band of, you know, legal, legal and cultural constraints. And so for Americans, there really is this notion about they are the single unit. And I think in Australia, we still have an idea about the collective. It may be fragmented. We may disagree about it. We may fundamentally believe that notion is falling apart, but it looks so different than the United States. And I think, you know, one of my older professors in university used to talk about, as an anthropologist looking at America, this notion of rugged individualism was that kind of construct, right? And that, you know, the notion of I as an individual am best empowered to make decisions. Uh, we can look at that and go, well, you're not making very good ones. <laughs> sort of there's that piece. I think the second piece is that there is um, sitting with that some really interesting ideas about what does it mean to make decisions? What does it mean to be informed? How do you understand information? And how do you think about sort of what rights you have? And in Australia, there's always a conversation about responsibilities that go with that. In the US, that's often an absent piece of the puzzle so that you can have people talk about their rights, but they don't often talk about responsibilities. And so I remember when I first moved to the US, people were absolutely aghast that it was a, a responsibility of citizens to vote in Australia. They thought that was the most extraordinary thing they'd ever heard. How can you possibly mm. be compelled to vote? Oh, my God, like total abrogation of your citizens' rights. And, and I just remember looking at them and going, I don't understand the conversation we're having. Like, how do you not vote? And why, why would we vote? You're like, okay, good. Um, so I think you've got a couple of pieces at work, right? There's definitely a piece that says these are profoundly different ideas about what it means to be a citizen, an individual versus part of a collective. I think it's important to remember the United States is composed of 50 states and those states are far more fragmented than the seven seven we have in Australia. Uh, six states, two territories. I, I live in a territory. I tend to forget that I'm not a state. Um, and I think, you know, the notion of the national, the sort of the national conversation that was being, you know, formed in the, 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 the aftermath of COAG, very different. Um, there's no version of that in the US. You also don't have a national medical health system, which means you don't aggregate information up. It comes up and flows through the CDC. So you have multiple pieces of the puzzle where it was much easier in Australia to see the early warning signals and decide you were going to make a series of interventions. In the US, there's not a consensus about what those signals would have been, let alone an ability to hear them. So you have lots of states moving on their own. And the notion of scale, right, 320 to 330 million people is really different than 26. Uh, Indeed. Yes, yeah, true. They are trying to build a wall with Mexico and there was a story the other day where the contractors, uh, so they didn't have to guard the building sites, were hiring Mexicans to come across the border and guard the American side. Oh, yes, and there are bits of that wall that look remarkably like the dingo-proof and the rabbit-proof fence where you can see it being built and it stops every night and things are still moving on the other side of it. Not that I want to suggest that, you know, immigrants in either direction are feral animals, but there is a bit of the, oh. the notion of what problem are you solving for there is a little complicated. Uh, indeed. Um, we also talk about QAnon and that phenomenon a lot on this podcast. How do you see that fitting into this structure? 
Well, conspiracy theories are hardly new, and the notion of conspiracy theories are hardly new, as is the notion of gossip, right? And I think of conspiracy theories as a kind of supercharged form of gossip. And, you know, gossip is a form of tacit social regulation. So does it surprise me that you would see an enhanced version of that in this moment in time? No. Um, I think, you know, the notion of tacit social regulation often happens when people feel like they don't have explicit power. So that Mm. doesn't surprise me. Um, You know, what gets gossiped about in this sense or in this notion, what gets conspired about or notions of what is the conspiracy tell us a great deal about people's anxieties, tell us a great deal about where people are feeling either disenfranchised, disempowered, or where they would like to see a different outcome, gossip being that too, right? Uh, I think the thing that is profoundly different in this moment in time is speed and scale. So where in our childhood it might have taken a bit of time for gossip to spread because it was mostly being done physically in conversations, sometimes in newsletters, occasionally in the editorial pages, the letters to the editor in the local newspaper or in council meetings, all of which we will remember as places where all manner of conspiracies and gossip were kind of fronted and forwarded. Here you can have things move at speed and where it can move in seconds and it can aggregate uh, it can aggregate uh, a kind of uh, a sense that because so many people are engaging in it, it must have a kind of truth to it. And the more the resistance, the more it seems like what is being resisted is true. And I sort of, I look at all of that and I think, well, that notion is hardly new. And the idea of attempting to spread conspiracies about, you know, was that queen really a virgin? Was that marriage really consummated? Is that Pope really in power? Is that president really elected? Those are hardly new stories. What's different is the Mm. speed and sort of scale at which they can multiply, even in some ways the dimensionality of them, the kind of narratives are hardly new ones either, right? We've we've often talked about those kind of conspiracies. Uh, You know, people in power had perverse and perversity on their side. People were covering up certain kinds of truths if we could only get to the bottom of them. Pretty certain Shakespeare had some things to say about that too. So in a sentence, what do you think will happen in the United States next? How how will this play out? Listen, I think at a sort of level of the, the, the socio-judicial imagination, so the kind of interplay between, you know, war and politics and people, the most startling thing about the last four years has been understanding that American systems were predicated on the notion that people would behave in them with a notion of honour, quote-unquote, and that people would be honourable and bound by the rules. And most of the founding fathers and the constitutional framers never imagined that someone would occupy a position of power who did not regard the adherence to the rules as part and parcel of what made them someone worthy of the position. And so the notion of suddenly having people who don't actually buy into the fundamental cultural underpinning (laughs) or the normative notions about what it means to be, you know, worthy of the office, if you don't buy that, there are a whole series of checks and balances that simply don't work. And what isn't clear to me sitting here is what happens now that you know that? Do you just hope that the next incumbent will be someone bound by those things and that the outgoing incumbent will suddenly behave in a way they haven't up until now? And if you have to allow that honour and the mere presence of the rules isn't enough, what on earth do you do next? That is an excellent sentence. <laughs> what, what on earth do you do next? I mean, That's always a good sentence.
time for a little bit of uh, housekeeping. First of all, the next episode uh, will be the end of year panel show. Uh, I haven't locked in all the guests yet, so I'll do a little mini promo thingy to tell you about them in the next few days. Uh, Should be recorded in the coming weeks, so if you have trigger words or conversation topics to get in uh, to that end-of-year panel discussion, uh, please get them to me as soon as you can. Uh, What else do I need to tell you? Oh, yes. Genevieve and I are talking about way too many things uh, here for me to link to all of them. Uh, There's quite a few links going into the show notes already, uh, but you may need to do some of your own explanations. Now, this episode, again, it's thanks to all of you lovely people who contributed to the 9pm End of Spring series 2020. They're listed on the website, except when they're not. Uh, and uh, it's also thank you this time, I must say, for this episode to Frank Filipponi, whose annual subscription just renewed. That was lovely. Thank you, Frank. Ingrid Lees, who said, I just read the Trady Campbelltown Mitchell thread on Twitter, so here I am. And, and I will link to that too. That was a strange little thing that happened on Twitter. Kathy Reed, who you'll hear more from in just a moment. Thank you, Kathy. And Thank you very much to the ever-generous Peter Leverdink. Thank you so much. If you'd like to join those people, and I know in the quarantine times it has been difficult, but things are getting better and it's approaching Christmas. So if you'd like to join all of those lovely people uh, and uh, contributing to this podcast and also to all of my shit posting on Twitter and everything else, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip, the 9pmedict.com slash tip, or subscribe and you'll get conversation topics or trigger words or something like that. So why don't you pause the podcast and go and do that now. And while you're doing it, please tell other people about the podcast. Building the audience is always good, even if you can't contribute in dollary dues. Thank you. Yes, Kathy Reed. As I said, she's picked a trigger word. And Genevieve, flat white is your trigger word from Kathy Reed, who I believe you know. I do know Kathy, and I've known Kathy for quite some time. Full disclosure here, I first met Kathy when I keynoted at a Linux conference in Geelong many years ago. I subsequently met Kathy when she turned up in my program here at the Australian National University. In between those things, I was not on the committee that admitted her for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> and the trigger word is flat white. Well, Kathy knows I have a problem with coffee. A problem with coffee? Sure. Insofar as that I like to have it and I spent 30 years living in America, you can see the problem. And when Starbucks uh, introduced to something called a flat white, I turned out to be deeply, deeply, deeply profoundly disappointed. When they offered it in pumpkin spice Christmas flavours, I became enraged. Okay. All right. That summarises that. Thank you. Pumpkin spice flat white. So wrong. Well, back in 1939, I began writing robot stories. And by the time I'd written two and three, there was a pattern in these stories which John Campbell, the editor of Astounding Science Fiction and my literary father, pointed out to me. He said I was having my robots behave as though they were guided by three laws. 
The first law was that a robot couldn't hurt a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second law was that a robot had to obey orders given it by human beings, provided that didn't conflict with the first law. And the third law was that a robot had to uh, protect its own existence, except where that would conflict with the first two laws. Anyone who reads any science fiction knows who that is, right? That's Isaac Asimov. And what I, I will say that's from a longer interview from 1975, full link in the podcast, it's 24 minutes. 1939, he says, he's saying that, but are Asimov's laws really, I mean, where do they fit into the history of robots and intelligent machines? Well, so wonderfully, Asimov and his three laws of the robot, I was in a meeting not that long ago with some lawyers who were starting to talk about AI and ethics, and one of them said, well, I found these three laws of the robot, and I think we could just use them, and they put it up, and I realised that he had Asimov, thinking that they were, in fact, actual laws of robots. I had to giggle a little bit and explain to him who Asimov was. It's a bit like, dude, really? Okay. Um, What's fascinating to me in Asimov is what he was responding to, right? So by the 1930s, the late 1930s, mostly where robots lived was in science fiction. It's a term, the, even the word robot, right, is coined in a play in 1920, 1921 by a Czechoslovakian playwright. The play was Rossum's Universal's Robots. The playwright is Chapek. That play unfolds with the narrative we would utterly recognise because it's basically Blade Runner, but in 1921. Uh, delightfully, a play written in 1921, 1920, premieres in Prague in January 21. It ends up going global, right? So it's a play that turns up in London and New York and Tokyo and Sydney in the Playbox Theatre. Uh, and it's a play that clearly from its get-go scripts robots as being these bio, bioengineered humans. Um, and really kind of interesting in terms of what they were doing. But the play also sets up this notion that the robots will ultimately rise up and attempt to kill their makers. And so the notion of how do you constitute responsible robotics is clearly set up as a literary trope from the moment it appears. And it's clearly then borrowing on Frankenstein and Gollum and many other things. By the time you get into the 1930s, people were trying to build robots, mostly as art installations or as kind of technical wonders. In 39, you see the first walking, talking, the walking piece being the important bit. Robot turns up at the World's Fair, um, something called Electro, uh, built by Westinghouse. And it's the chunkiest robot you've ever seen. Oh, but it's beautiful. It's like completely kind of, you know, proto-brushed aluminum, aluminium. It walks and talks. It has a bellows in its head so it can both blow up balloons and smoke cigarettes. Completely excellent. And it hangs around with Johnny Whitemore. Look, that bit's excellent, but really... Uh- like a smoking robot? Well, of course, it's completely cool. It's the 19, you know, 1939. Um, there is a movie uh, called something like uh, Middletown maybe that has Electro in it, walking and talking. It's gloriously weird. Uh, so you have all of that happening, but by the 1940s, the conversation has moved to thinking more about computing rather than robotics. And so in the early 1940s, it's people like Licklider, so the man who would invent DARPA, so the sort of defence organisation that funded all the early um, innovation in the US in the computing era. So Licklider, uh, John von Neumann, who builds the ENIAC, so the first kind of what we would think of a stored memory computer. Uh, Norbert Wiener, who at that point is kind of an early mathematician working in systems and uh, systems and control theory. Together, along with people like Shannon from 
uh, Bell Labs, they constitute this series of conversations in New York starting in 1944, but really kicking off in 45, 46. And over the period of eight years, they have a series of conversations under the banner of cybernetics, a term that uh, Norbert Wiener in invents in a book he writes at that moment in time, but a term that he means to constitute the entire feedback loop created by computing. And he imagines that cybernetic loop would include technical systems, human systems, and ecological systems. And so the arc of these conversations unfolds with people who are interested in biology, ecology, human beings, technical systems. It involves conversations about octopus consciousness and bees and computers and brain control. And there are these crazy conversations that just sound like full on out there. Um, you know, there's a lovely kind of transcript of all of the various conversations. And Margaret Mead, an anthropologist who helps kind of, you know, bring American anthropology into public consciousness, she helped curate those early conversations along with her husband, Gregory Bateson, who's incredibly important for the kind of work he does on ecology in the US in the 60s and 70s. But, you know, the pair of them reflect on this conversation in 1973 or four, I think, and they go, it was like, a, it was an event like no other. There were these and I'm really wildly paraphrasing Mitch, like there were these really kind of strict, rigid mathematicians who just wanted to talk about one thing. There were a bunch of social scientists who kind of knew how to manage that one thing but wanted to talk about other things. And then there were these people in the middle, she say, who have, um, they, were, they were loose gossips and had no disciplines. Oh, like, and as a result, it was the most interesting event I'd ever been to because you didn't know how to make sense of those conversations. But out of that is birthed this interest in cybernetics and this notion that computing shouldn't be understood alone it needed to be understood in these dialogues or feedback loops with humans and, and the ecosystem by the 1950s that strips down to just ai right so now we talk about the future of computing starting in 1956 and it's all about can computers be like brains but brains without bodies and brains without context now I had written down stuff about how algorithms are now doing racist things, that people who reckon they can have a robot interview you for a job, which makes it unbiased, that in China, Huawei has now got AI software to tell when someone's a Uyghur minority to alert the police that there's a Uyghur in the wrong place so that they can be rounded up and sent back. And there's a whole thing, what is the future of AI? And it is literally three minutes until your next meeting. Genevieve, I think you really do only get one last sentence because I know what your sentences are like. <laughs> Short. We, we have been building technical systems for thousands of years. We have chosen what we want to have in those systems and those systems reflect both our present and our past and they can shape our future, but in order to have a different future than the present in which we're living, we would have to actively decide to do that. And unless we want to intervene in the data we collect, the data we don't collect, the ways in which we make sense of that data and the ways we choose to apply it and the places in which we apply it, we will get a future that is remarkably like our present. The only way to have something different is to actively choose in this moment to do so. Doctor, or I should say, distinguished professor Genevieve Bell. Ooh, yay. Thanks so much. We should do this again sometime. I would like that. Genevieve Bell, round of applause. Thank you. You, you, you. There's no audience. Cheers. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. A couple of quick things before uh, we finish. Stay with me, people. Stay with me. First of all, 
sorry if the audio was uh, not up to uh, the usual standards today. I won't explain why. It's just my fault. Sorry. Secondly, uh, Electro the Robot. Uh, Genevieve mentioned uh, a film, something like Middleton in the title. Well, in fact, that's the 1939 film, The Middleton Family at the New York World's Fair. Uh, sound 55 minutes, Technicolor 35 millimeter. It's on the Internet Archive. So you can see that, links, uh, links to that, link singular to that. Uh, I, love, I love the uh, the notes about the film. It says, This drama illustrates the contribution of free enterprise technology and Westinghouse products to the American way of life. The Middleton family at the New York World's Fair pits an anti-capitalist bohemian artist boyfriend against an all-American electrical engineer who believes in improving society by working through corporations. The Middletons experience Westinghouse's technological marvels at the fair and win back their daughter from her leftist boyfriend. That's the Middleton family at the New York World's Fair, 1939. I will be watching that myself. Uh, and also, more electro. In 1992, the band Meat Beat Manifesto produced a song called Original Control Version 2, which includes snippets of Electro's monologues, which were played at the time uh, from the robot off 78 records. Why not? Uh, some of the lines include, I am Electro and my brain is bigger than yours. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to find this. And here's a new one. Electro also appeared in the role of Thinko in the 1960 movie Sex Kittens Go to College. Uh, the notes uh, on that uh, are that the film, these are from, this is from Wikipedia, uh, the film was also released in adult theatres with an additional nine-minute dream sequence which showcased the robot Sam Thinko with striptease dancers. <sighs> Raunchy stuff, eh? Well, that's all the edict for now, all the links, all the credits, and how you can like, subscribe, send money, etc. are at the 9pmedict.com. The next episode is the end-of-year panel, date TBA. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.